You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow living apparel and lifestyle brand. We started this podcast as a means to further share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having constantly in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. Come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now let's dig in. Hello, everyone. Um, Here we are coming to you from the other side of our annual big event, the Slow Living Retreat. We did it. We did it last weekend. And we did it online this time. It was all virtual on Zoom. So if you were joining us there, we hope that you had a really great time, and we definitely did. I was really, like, just kind of floored at the way that the community really came together, and I felt like I met people and made new friends, and I saw new connections happening in a way that um, we weren't sure how we were going to pull that off virtually, but we did it. Which is really yeah, cool. we just we really didn't know, and and personally for me, who um, I didn't have a lot to do with the technical side of it because that's not my background, and um, I was I'm just amazed. I'm just amazed at what transpired. Um, thanks to all our wonderful team and people that knew how to do it, and it was a learning for for everybody. I think. Um, like back in the spring when we realized that it really wasn't a good idea to plan an, an, an in-person retreat. And we said, okay, we'll just do it virtually. And I don't think any of us really knew what that meant, but we figured it out and it's awesome. Yeah. Did you have a favorite part of it? The retreat, the, my favorite part, gosh, there was so much, you know, one of the things that I, I'm so proud of is the variety of content we had and the richness of the the workshop options that there was so much to learn there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm really happy about that, but I really, really enjoyed, um, at the, the happy hour when we got to go in the breakout rooms and meet people that were there. And I think next time we'll do more of that. Yeah, definitely. We were really kind of planning it. We were really kind of unsure. You know, breakout rooms, they can be kind of awkward and uncomfortable. And like when I'm in Zoom meetings and someone says, okay, we're going to breakout rooms, I'm kind of like, ugh. (laughs) So we didn't know. But I think in this context, we did it towards the end of the day. People were more comfortable with each other. And we had really specific things we wanted to talk about in the breakout rooms. So I think it went well. And um, definitely it seemed to be a favorite. Um, for me, I really loved how in the mornings when the yoga class started and every, like watching everyone, you know, put out their mat and get ready. That was like a really grounding togetherness way to start the day all together. That was really cool. 
It was. And uh, believe it or not, folks, less than a week after the fact, we're already talking about some things about next year. So if you weren't able to to join us this year and you're interested, then stay tuned for more details as we roll it out. Yeah. Um, and not just the retreat next year, but also other events and community stuff that we can be doing together online. Um, also with the retreat, we launched the Almanac, which is our online membership platform. Anyone who came to the retreat got free access to the Almanac for six months or a year. Uh, but we are opening up the Almanac to anyone who wasn't able to join us at the retreat starting December 1st. So you'll be hearing some more about that. But basically, it is kind of everything at the retreat and more all throughout the year. So we have scheduled out, we've planned out for the next several seasons, um, some kind of guided community, slow living through the seasons activities and essays and recipes. Um, and then on top of the community in there of other like-minded people working on, you know, taking these small little steps in their own lives. Uh, we have found that that's a super effective way to, if you're looking to adopt a new lifestyle or learn new things, connecting with other people that are on the same journey with you is just such a game changer. So that's why we created the Almanac and it's already so much fun. We love it. We love being in there and um, we can't wait to open it up to more people. So stay tuned for more on that. Um but today, yeah. we are so excited to introduce uh, another one of my favorite parts of the weekend, which was talking to Natalie Channon from Alabama Channon for our live recording of the Good Dirt podcast. This is our first live recording, too, which is crazy. Yeah. So the idea into doing a, a live podcast recording at the retreat was to see what it was like to have the audience present there where, where they could react with the guest um, or interact with the guest in um, real time with comments and questions and just a, a kind of different atmosphere. And so it was really fun. Um, so Emma, you want to tell them all about Natalie? Yeah. Yeah. Also, what I was going to say to something you were going to say is um, live, you know, everything now, like it was still virtual, yeah. but it was live. But I, it right. really made me really like, I can't wait until we can actually do live recordings. That would be so fun, like an in-person talk show um, with an audience. Anyways. There needs to be another word for um, live virtual. Yeah. There'll be one. There's like a new dimension. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is a new dimension. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't already know Natalie, um, you're in for a treat. Natalie Channon is widely recognized as an icon in the world of sustainable fashion. She's super inspiring to me personally as well. She's the founder and creative director of Alabama Channon, a lifestyle company producing ethically and responsibly manufactured clothing and home goods. Alabama Channon is also known for being at the forefront of the slow fashion movement, including slow design, cultural preservation, and zero waste initiatives and in all of their practices. And we feel so fortunate to have had her as our guest for this episode in particular, because she represents the culmination of so many of the values and goals that we espouse through Lady Farmer. 
Yeah, I really appreciated how um, transparent she was in telling her own story. And um, she talks about just owning, like, not being able to do it all right and not having all the answers. And sometimes when you're going down a path, like, for example, she talks about in the interview, she started using recycled T-shirts and they would – her company was they would take apart recycled t-shirts and sew them back together with using these hand stitching methods. And um, somewhere along the line, she talked to someone like a mentor person who helped her realize or just gave her another uh, way of thinking about it where maybe the recycled t-shirts and everything that goes into like upcycling them um, isn't as like sustainable or in line with her goals as would say maybe sourcing organic cotton would be and like starting so it's it's this whole gray area in this world of sustainable and slow and eco-friendly and um a big theme of the retreat was that there's no right way to do it and there's a lot of gray um and I think Natalie was just it was really interesting to hear her talk about that and just be really honest and transparent with it yeah. Of course, we, we talk a lot about um, the slow fashion industry and sustainable sourcing and manufacturing. But a big part of what Natalie does is um, she's also about remembering and elevating the traditional arts of making. We both talked about how we were more surrounded by that in our own childhoods from our generation. And um, these things that have almost disappeared in the last generation, whether it's making our own food, our own clothing, tools, just the implements of daily living. Um, that's also very important part of her background and her ethos as a, the leader in this field. Yeah, she speaks to the value of handmade, the power of community, and the importance of local engagement as a business and as a consumer. So... Um, we hope that you enjoy this episode with Natalie. It's a special one because it's all, uh, I mean, we're really not editing it much. <laughs> it's, it's all live from the air. Um, and if you do, if you enjoy this one and you enjoy any of our other episodes, please remember to rate and leave a review. That's super helpful for new listeners to come find us. And just make sure you're subscribed and keep listening to The Good Dirt. There's much more Good Dirt where this came from. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our first live recording of The Good Dirt podcast. This is really exciting. Yeah. (laughs) We're trying something new here, so... Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations to us. For being the first participant. Um, <laughs> um, so this is a slightly different format from what we did this morning. Um, we will be answering any questions that you have for Natalie or us or both of us at the, at the end of our conversation with Natalie. And you can ask those questions in the question box. Um, the chat box, feel free to um, just share your thoughts or your feelings, but the Q&A box is for your questions, and so we'll, we'll see those easier. Um, but yes, and um, I will say that we are so thankful to our sponsors, Holy Lamb Organics, for sponsoring this podcast episode with Natalie. 
Uh, Holy Lamb is a wonderful company based in Washington State. Get all of your amazing organic bedding there that they source from local farmers in Northern California from regeneratively managed uh, ranches and for awesome wool bedding, organic sheets, all of yeah. the good stuff. We love them. And you can find these things in our marketplace. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, and great. So with that, we will, I will introduce Natalie. We're so excited to have Natalie here today. Uh, Natalie is the founder and creative director of Alabama Channon. She was born and raised in Florence, Alabama, where her company is based. Natalie has a degree in environmental design with a focus on industrial and craft-based textiles from North Carolina State University. After graduation, Natalie worked in the junior sportswear industry on New York 7th Avenue before moving abroad. For over a decade, Natalie worked as a stylist and a costume designer traveling the globe. She returned home in 2001 with the intention of producing a line of hand-sewn t-shirts. In the process of creating that project, she also produced a short documentary. That film, Stitch, focused on traditional quilt making in the South with stories told by those who stitched and were warned by those quilts. Each character in the film had a unique story. Each quilt told the tale of the joys and hardships and the friendships and family bonds of a specific time and place. While producing the film and collection of t-shirts, Natalie met many women who were former seamstresses or textile workers from the 1980s when her hometown's former title was T-shirt capital of the world. The signing of, the NAFTA, of NAFTA left many women and men unemployed as Alabama's textile industry moved south of the border. This perfect storm of circumstances inspired Alabama Channon. Natalie strives to achieve complete sustainability at every stage of the manufacturing process, from materials and processes to cultural sustainability in the form of preserving hand-sewing so hand skills. Over the years, Alabama Channon has organically expanded, and in addition to the Alabama Channon collection, includes the School of Making, the Factory Store, and Building 14 Design and Manufacturing Services. In 2013, Channon won the CFDA Lexus Eco Fashion Challenge, an award competition that identifies and celebrates the greatest American designers working in the realm of sustainable fashion. Natalie continues to learn and to teach craft traditions or living arts, using them to bridge generational, economic, and cultural gaps. Oh. So there was really no better person we could have on to uh, our podcast recording today to be with us for this really special weekend of our Slow Living virtual retreat. Um, Natalie, we are so happy to have you here. And Hi, we will Natalie. <laughs> Welcome. Here she is. I know that was long, but it was worth it was worth um, yeah. telling everyone the backstory. Yeah. So how are you doing? I'm good. Um, you know, we're <laughs> like everybody. We're just getting through this. You know, the next surge. I guess that's what we're yeah. living now. So. Yeah. And you're coming to us today from Florence, Alabama. Yes, I'm at my home in Florence, so yeah. thank you for having me. Uh, we're so excited to talk to you today. And um, so we've heard a, a lot about the, uh, the trajectory of your career in the fashion industry. Um, and what we will want to ask you is uh, what have been some of the biggest surprises along the way there as, as we um, described your <laughs> your journey there 
you know, I mean, I guess um, we were talking just before we went on about, you know, I grew up in the rural South and you don't necessarily think about, um, you know, Alabama or, you know, Northwest Alabama being a hotbed of fashion, you know. Um, so, but there is this deep, um, you know, history of textiles here as you guys um, so beautifully um, described and, um, so I, I would say there's a lot of surprises along the way, you know, just um, the fact that I was able to work as a stylist and travel around and work for all different kinds of companies at that time felt very surprising to me. And then, you know, when I came home to make those t-shirts and that uh, documentary film, it you know, I thought it was just going to be for a, a, like a one-time thing. It was a project that I was going to do. And I'm, you know, I had planned to be home for um, about a month or two months. And you're like on that as the filmmaker, correct? That was your role? I was the director and okay. um, I had, uh, I worked with a, a camera woman and uh, one other, like a production person. I, I had been working in film as a stylist. And so one of the film production companies that I had done a lot of work with um, sponsored the film. So that was really great. And, um, you know, we did about 80 hours of interviews and films with, um, with quilters all over our, um, you know, a, a three county area here. And um, the documentary film is about 20 minutes long. I think we sent you a link, and if not, we can send you a link. Yeah, we'll it. share oh, it in. Um, we'll share it in the almanac. So people who are here at the retreat this weekend, and anyone who joins the almanac after, can have access to it as well. Right. It's. Um, you know, it's uh, almost 20 years old now, and so um, a, most, the majority of the people who are interviewed in the film have already passed away, so wow. um, the, the camera woman at that time, she said, you know, it's, um, I mean, it's a pretty simple little film, but she said, you know, it's going to be more important in 10 years than it is today. It'll be even more important in 20 years, yeah. and then 50 years yeah. down the road, it'll be even more important, so... Um, you know, we were really, really lucky to get to spend time with all these uh, women and men. And um, it was just amazing to hear those, you know, the stories of my region, um, things I didn't know about growing up. And um, yes, yeah, so, you know, that was kind of like a really deep dive into the community of my childhood. And then I thought I would be leaving after, um, you know, a couple of months. And uh, here I am 20 years later. I'm still here. So that's been quite a surprise. Is that not what you <laughs> expected from your life? <laughs> I've built a business here and to have won the CFDA Lexus Award, like you're talking about. So yeah. there's been a lot of really great moments and surprises along the way. <laughs> Oh, wow. Well, <clears throat> it's been said a lot that um, you were ahead of your time in the sustainable fashion movement. And um, was there a turning point or an aha moment in your career when um, you recognized the extent of the problems in the industry and you said, I, I want to do something different here and I want to I want to do it a different way? Or did it more just evolve into that? Uh, some, some of each. So, you know, when I worked on 7th Avenue, I was traveling overseas some and, um, 
you know, that would have been the end of the 80s. And, you know, I did see in these production capitals where I was working a lot of um, very unhealthy things that were happening, um, you know, just in terms of ecologically and human rights issues and things like that. And so I really had decided that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And, um, but you know, I sort of just changed jobs. I didn't really change the industry. I just changed the job. So I wasn't uh, really doing anything. I was just working on a different side of the industry and really, you know, I would say part of the problem, but, um, you know, when, once I came home and we started doing the production for the handsome garments, you know, there were a few things that um, really surprised me. So I had been living in Europe for 10 years and, um, you know, uh, one of the first things was just the food. I was really surprised. Um, I started, like, I couldn't find milk that tasted right. Um, and so I started, like, doing this deep dive. And why, why is the food not tasting the way I remember as a child? Why is it not tasting the way I remember, you know, when I was living in Europe? And, you know, um, I began this kind of deep dive and learned a lot about, you know, the the, the industry, the dairy industry, and how it just had changed so much, and um, the taste of the food changed, and, you know, uh, the tomatoes that you bought in the store didn't taste to me like the, made it, the tomatoes that um, we were growing in our garden as a kid, and, and so I planted a garden, and, um, you know, began to understand, like, what was happening in our region in terms of um, mass farming, and at the same time, you know, we were working with recycled t-shirts and I was learning more and more. Um, you know, I was very lucky to meet uh, Jill Dumaine from Patagonia at a conference that we both spoke at. Um, and, you know, just have really in-depth conversations about, um, you know, recycled t-shirts versus organic cotton. And, you know, I learned about the organic cotton farmers in Texas who we're still working with today. And um, so it was just this long process. And, you know, I would even say it's still going on today. You know, I, um, we still have a lot to learn and there's a lot of things that we can still do better. So, um, you know, it's kind of never ending. Yeah, because I think you and I are from a similar, similar era and I've, I've uh, heard you talk about this, about remembering, um, at your childhood growing up and with your grandmothers in a time where people were more self-sufficient with their food and um, there was a and and everything else and there was this culture of making that pervaded life in those years um, so just I thought it'd be fun if you just shared with our audience some reflection on on this your relationship with food and clothing as a child and I have similar memories too um, mm -hmm. And, and what sense did you have growing up that, other than when you came back from Europe, that, that things were shifting away at the time? Do you remember a time when you said, gosh, this, you know, this is really, um, this has really changed? Yeah, uh, well, you know, somebody said it uh, at some point, maybe 10 years ago, you know, our, my grandparents, they were some of the greenest living yeah. people on earth. You know, it was kind of the last generation where everybody was so connected to the, to the land. Um, 
at least people living in rural communities. You know, my grandfather was, um, became a scientist. I mean, we're from a pretty rural area, but he worked his way and became a scientist and wound up working for TVA and developing, uh, working on the uh, fertilizer program there. And, um, you know, I just remember as a kid, him sort of telling a story, he didn't think it was a great idea. And so that was one of the reasons he grew all the food for the family. And, you know, I guess until I don't really remember it, but my mother said until I was three, you know, they milked a cow and we had milk from the cow. And my grandmother, as I was growing up, she made the bread, she made all the clothes that her daughters wore. They, you know, they grew everything. I mean, every summer we would sit on the back porch and, you know, shell, shell peas and, um, um, you know, put up corn and all that kind of stuff. And that's what we ate all through the year. They raised cattle and, um, you know, had a slaughter once a year and provided food, uh, provided meat for the entire family. So, you know, it just seems so normal. And I, you know, I've, I've said a few times, I don't really remember as a child understanding that there was a job you could have as a designer you know, I just, it just seemed to me that people made things and that was just the most natural thing in the world. Like my, um, both of my grandmothers were really avid sewers and each of them had three girls and, um, you know, there weren't a lot of stores where you could get something very special. And, um, and so they, they made, I mean, my, my father's mother even made underwear, you know, she just, she made everything. And, um, so I just remember always thinking they could just imagine something and just whip it up. You know, that's yeah. <laughs> kind of how they talked about it. Like it was just the easiest thing in the world. And I'm not saying that I got, you know, I, I wasn't able to just whip it up by the time I wound up going to college. But um, I think I just always had this sense that all things could be made. You know? yeah. My dad was the builder. He made built houses. And so it just seemed like we were very self-sufficient in a way. I think there was a time when, um, you know, they, you know, your, your mothers and grandmothers would make sure that you knew how to sew and you knew how to do all these things before you went off in life. And somewhere along the line, that sort of just drifted off. <laughs> Even going one step further, you know, it was available in all the high schools, which yeah. I think our local high school is, is, has reintroduced all these classes. And, you know, that's something that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Like, you know, home, home economics was really important because it wasn't only about teaching girls and boys how to sew and cook and those sort of things, but really to understand the, econ the economics of running a household or, you know, maybe they weren't able to sew a shirt, but they were able to turn a shirt inside out and see if it was well made in order to, um, you know, make wise purchases. And I think, you know, in, in a culture that's so um, committed to purchasing, that would be such an important thing to teach people, you know, how to spend your money wisely and how to, what the difference is between, you know, buying something of better quality or lesser quality and, um, you know, how to store your food so that you, that it's safe and you can save it and things like that. So, um, I think all of that changed, you know, uh, shortly after our generation of 
I mean, I almost failed um, home ec sewing. So <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> My home ec teacher said, you will never learn how to sew. Uh, <laughs> I also think there's something to what you're saying in talking about your memories and the kind of the, the resourcefulness and the ingenuity, uh, not ingenuity, ingenuity that we used to have. Um, that really is actually kind of in the availability of now being able to buy whatever we want and have it delivered to our doorstep in the next 48 hours, if not sooner, kind of steals us of that need to be more resourceful and ingenious <laughs> um, in the ways that we, you know, when you have to figure something out, you just figure it out. Yeah. And when you don't have to, you, you kind of miss out on that opportunity to learn yeah. that. I think innovative is another word. Yeah. There. And yeah, just resourcefulness, like figuring it out. Yeah. And yeah. so now we're kind of in this phase, and 2020 is an interesting example of this, where we're, um, and certainly the Lady Farmer Slow Living Retreat, I think, is part, part of what, what brings a lot of people here is this um, realization that we're missing out on something by not having these skills and not being connected uh, to these processes. And we don't want to lose them because it's only, it hasn't been that long. It's only oh, yeah. been a generation or two. Right. Um, and something in us knows the importance of hanging on to those things. And so we're just sort of following those little nudges. But yeah, I, my grandmother had chickens, and you said you, you had milk from a cow for your first three years. And yeah, so it hadn't been very long. <laughs> at it, all. it really hasn't. Uh, yeah. Can you tell a little bit about um, how your brand and your work uh, works to hold on to some of these values and traditions? Yeah. Um, well, you know, in the beginning, we were sewing everything by hand, and it was inspired by uh, just a, a simple quilting stitch or a running stitch. And um, over time, you know, we began to develop more intricate embroideries and things like that. And um, it was, um, you know, it became really clear to me that uh, some of these techniques were kind of fading away. And there was a moment very early on in the business where all of the women um, who were sewing for us were in their 40s and up. So there wasn't kind of a younger generation that was coming up behind us. Um, and so there was a fear for a moment, you know, if we were going to have a longer trajectory as a business, that there was not going to be this next generation. And, um, you know, I was proven wrong about that. So um, we do now have a lot, like a very wide range of ages. And, um, and so really, um, we had to do a lot of training, you know, to bring people's skills up to the level that um, that we were able to make clothing that could hang in Barney's or, you know, any of the really amazing stores that we were selling to at the time. And so I had just done this little hand, uh, hand-drawn book of stitches and, you know, kind of techniques that we were using. And, um, and so it occurred to us that you know, this book, like publishing a book so that these techniques could be shared with everybody would be great for us, but it would also be great for preserving this craft and this um, time. And so, um, you know, we published that first book and, um, and it just kind of snowballed from there. It was really, I mean, it is kind of a funny story when I, um, you know, 
first off, my complete, um, you know, naivete and thinking how easy it would be to do a book, um, you know, the first time they called, I was like, oh, yeah, I've already written it, you know, I'd already done my little hand-drawn book. It's like, yeah, it's done. <laughs> but it wound up taking about five years to get it all the way from, you know, through lots of hurdles and things like that. But, um, but when the first book was getting ready to come out, you know, a lot of people in my industry said, oh, you know, you've put your nail, your own nail in your own coffin. You know, nobody's going to buy your clothes anymore if you oh. teach them how to do it. And, oh. you know, first off, we were getting a lot of, it's hard to remember this, but the internet was really pretty young at that time. You know, that would have been like 2005. Um you know, when I started in 2000, um, you know, like two of our buyers had email addresses, you know, the oh. rest were all right. It's hard to remember that, that oh, um, the internet was not so um, prevalent, but, you know, I had been on a couple little chat rooms or something like that. And, I mean, this was pre Facebook, pre everything. And, you know, people had, uh, some people had just sort of commented about our company about what an elitist company we were because um, our clothes were so expensive. And, you know, meanwhile, I was like in this little three bedroom brick ranch house on the side of County Road 200, you know, we were cutting old used t-shirts up and sewing them back together again by hand. It was, it was really very, um, if you think of bootstrap times a thousand, it was like bootstrapping it. And it just seemed to me the opposite of, um, of, you know, elitism. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. We were doing everything we can to make sure that everybody had a living wage in the U S and, um, you know, we were following labor law and all these things. And, um, and so it just seemed like this book, I was like, I, you know, if you can't afford to buy it, then you can make it. And um, so what happened was um, the book came out and we didn't stop selling the collection, but um, people who were reading the book were like, oh, this is kind of hard or it's not necessarily hard, but, you know, it takes a lot of time. And so they started saying, oh, now we understand why your garments are worth so much, not why they cost so much. Oh, right. And, oh. Um, and and so this whole um little thing started you know like people asking for us to sell just yardage of fabric and so we did that and then they wanted to have workshops and then they wanted to have kits where it was cut out and ready to sew and so it was just like this long slow process of having these conversations and teaching workshops and we began, you know, we opened a restaurant and started writing about food and the importance of food and farming and, um, you know, in textiles and, um, you know, it just, it's been a 20 year, I guess, conversation, I would say, you know, just evolved. That's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, as we were talking about when people lose touch with the making of it, they lose touch with the process, they lose touch with the source. And they're accustomed to being able to get things cheaply and quickly uh, all the time. Then there's a lot of re-education or unlearning yeah. about what things actually need to cost. And, yes. and, you know, we think, oh, you can go to, you know, whatever store and you can get so many dresses for this cost. Um, and 
we think of that as being a good price. But we like to turn the idea of the good price on its head and say, um, that's really not a good price. It, it might be less money out of your pocket, but it's really not a good price in that it does good for the people all along the, the line in the supply chain and the, the planet. And it's, it's actually the good price is where the artisan or the artisans or the makers are and the, the workers and the planters or whatever paid all along the way. Everybody has to win because if yes. one person doesn't win, that part collapses. And so you have to have winners all along the line yeah. for it to, to, for it to work. Yeah. Um, there's a great little video called the story of stuff and we can put yes. that link in, in, in there too. And it's, it's just, it's great for kids too. It's just a little illustration about how, you know, something being made someplace else, it, there, there is a cost everywhere. You know, it yeah. doesn't matter how you do it. There's either a humanitarian cost or an ecological cost where they're, you know, clear cutting land that's, um, um, you know, is needed for, for, a, for a different community. So just because it happens someplace else and we don't see it doesn't mean that it isn't having this deep right. impact and a very uh, high cost for another um, community. So of course, and just because we aren't paying a whole lot for it doesn't mean someone else isn't yeah. paying a whole right. lot in other right. ways. So we actually, we, we welcome those comments about price, you know, whether- I'm sure you do too now. Yeah. I, I bet you love it when someone says why is your stuff so expensive you're like well yeah let me tell <laughs> gives you. you a chance gives us a chance to tease this out and it's funny the bigger you get the the more complicated that that becomes you know so you know these are conversations we had all along the way like at what point does a small business you know start hiring and then you have 10 employees and at what point do you start paying insurance for everybody and at what point do you do these things and so it becomes more expensive to manufacture because you want to do the right thing every yeah. step of the way and so you know those are the things the conversations that kind of get lost I think sometimes in pricing that yeah. you know you can go to Etsy and find someone who makes something maybe similar to us that is less expensive but um you know we have a different kind of structure in place where we try to take care of everybody along the way. So yeah, and it's yeah. pretty. It's pretty impossible to communicate all of that encapsulated. And <laughs> yeah, it's, just... it's, it's unless you've run a business, it's kind of hard to understand. I mean, I had a really hard time too. We were we we're working on our. Um, so I did a class once with um, Zingermans. Uh, so they have a or part of their organization called Zing Train which is about, um, they have some great business books. And so in 2013, we wrote a vision for the company. It's called a vision of greatness that um, for 2023. And we're just, we've just started working on a vision of greatness for 2030. So what happens 10 years from now uh, in the business? And, you know, it's really interesting to think about the trajectory of the business itself and what you want and how to structure that so that it's, you know, it doesn't have to be too big, but big enough for everybody. Yeah. And to have the kind of impact that you're hoping to have without yeah. sacrificing 
your values. It's tricky. And uh, you know, how much control had, can you have over each one of those things as we as we move through these, you know, economic things and you know, you know, this year of all things, um, you know, how do you navigate that? And sometimes you don't you don't really know where you're going to end up with all this. I think it's you know that's why I guess I call it a conversation. You know, yes. because you it's a constant conversation. I mean, we just met um, last week with one of our fabric suppliers, you know, and we have to have a conversation because they're having trouble with a color that we, you know, that's kind of one of our um, more popular colors. But if they're having trouble with it, we probably don't need to make it because it's not a win-win situation, you know? So it's like a conversation that we have together. Okay. The, this is a difficult thing. So why don't we try something different? You know, let's find a different way, you know? So how often do you find yourself? I mean, is that just all the time (laughs) or those kind of years? Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. I, 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 I was on this, um, I was in this conversation with some soil scientists and, someone commented that, um, I was a green washer, you know, and suddenly I was like, what? (laughs) Like I've been working 20 years to try to do this seed to shelf work. And, you know, I think I, like, we still have a lot to learn in some ways. It didn't make me mad. It made me like, oh, you know, we probably need to work harder. Like maybe we're not paying enough attention and we, you know, I, I think we're using the right dyes, but maybe we need to be looking at that again, mm-hmm. you know? And every year you you need to be looking at it. There are other options that happen all the time. And, you know, those are the kind of um, questions you have to have because we, you know, we dye in pretty big lots, right? Yeah. So we buy, you know, 25,000 yards of fabric at a, at a time or, you know, a, an equivalent to that in a year. And, um, you know, that's a lot of fabric to dye. So, wow. you know, it's a kind of conversation. Do you make less and support less people in your community? Or do you, um, you know, do the very best with what you have and continue to, you know, there's just always some sort of give and take everywhere. And I think you just, it's just staying on it constantly. And it's not like you're making one thing and you make that same thing over and over and over again it's it's a constant you know things are changing evolution we, we talk about thread and you know i was i was having a conversation with someone the other day like we for our machine sewn goods we buy an organic thread from wow. europe and you know we do try to be as local as possible and support as many people in our region as we can but you know, it's really, quality is really important. So, and, yeah. you know, this is another interesting conversation. What's more important, quality or organic, right? Yeah. In a best case scenario, it's both, but you don't want to buy an organic thread that is a poor or quality that the garment's going to fall apart more quickly. Yeah. Right? So quality really has to come first if you're talking about building a product that stands the test of time. And then if you can find organic on top of it, it's, you know, even better. So there's this great company that makes this beautiful thread there in Europe, but they're also working in the same way that we are with a local community. And so I love this idea of, you know, local global, 
Yes. Yes. What do we say? We say locally minded, globally invested. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and we're selling globally too. So, you know, these kinds of conversations make sense because that equipment to make that thread isn't in America right now. And, you know, so we're making the best decision that we can, we believe, currently for the planet. And, I love and, that you brought that up. We literally yeah. were struggling with this. We had a similar recently. Um, journey with uh, trying to use organic Yeah, we were so happy because we found some, yeah. and then our sewist was like, it doesn't it work. It gummed up the machine. <laughs> yeah. It, they, it literally wouldn't work in, yeah. in the machine she had, and so there you go. And so yeah. we're like, oh, are we not going to make the garment thing because we can't make it work with organic thread so yeah it's just like decisions all the time and but we're you know we're we're very small and we we can just like talk about these things all the time as you do as we go along and just sort of I guess involve our community and like this this is what we're trying to do this is what we've run up against this this is working this is not and it just kind of brings community into the whole thing uh you know, it's part of your, your process. And I know you certainly done that in your community. Um, yeah. I hope so. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the role of community and, um, and just maybe as a company or as the, the way that Alabama Channel kind of fits into the folds of Florence um, and how that ties into your entire ethos? Yes. I mean, you know, I first came home um, really looking for those hand-sewn skills from those quilters that I remembered my grandmother working with in my childhood. So that was kind of the first thought of community, and that's what really embedded me here. And then, you know, as like a second stage as a designer, I realized that there was a real opportunity here to make a difference and do good work. And so that embedded me even deeper in the community and you know what I was able to work with a, um, a large number of women and men in the community which made it even better and then um, you know eventually it turned out that this was the best place to raise and nourish my family and you know as an after you know product of that it turned out to be this was the best place to nourish me and, um, and so again, you know, back to that kind of conversation thing, like the, you know, the landscape and the, the nature that we're so close to began to inspire our colors and our patterns and our fabrics and, you know, the history of the textiles in the region, which you were talking about, which I knew as a kid growing up, but, you know, as a kid, you're only really, con- you have sort of blinders on, you're only really concerned with your own little box and you know that opened up so many other conversations and those people who um, came before us here were so generous and with their knowledge and teaching us how to you know we had to relearn how to make a t-shirt by machine here you know wow. the the sample sewer from the some one of the old uh, t-shirt factories here was you know in her mid 60s and came in and taught all of us you know younger and then very young people how to use these machines and how to um how to to make these things and um and so then there was this beautiful conversation with the generations of the community and with the generations of textile um, makers and workers in the community and um i just 
you know, it goes on and on. There's this beautiful music industry here that has fueled a lot of creativity. And, you know, um, there's just a, there's a beautiful history here of creative people like Helen Keller, who inspired generations of people, um, not only, you know, through overcoming disability, but as a really great thinker, you know, and so there were, um, you know, it's just, I think all communities are rich with stories like the ones that I've just told you. you know, it's ours. so true. I was going to say, um, I don't know how many people listening really know uh, how really rich Florence is, like Florence, Alabama. It seems kind of random and like <laughs> you wouldn't think about it, but um you know, Muscle Shoals, Alabama is where a lot of the great recording artists and recording, like actual recordings have come out of. And it's said to have been a place sought after for that Muscle Shoals sound. Um, And as you mentioned, Helen Keller, and then there's, you're not the only like high-end fashion designer in Florence, which is also crazy. (laughs) Billy Reed is there too. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, so I just... It was... um you know, is credited with um, starting the blues. So this has always been a very um, rich area with music. We have uh, Pulitzer Prize winning authors from here. Wow. Recently, T.S. Stribling before him. Um, So I'd love to get your, what do you think, is it something in the water? Are you in a vortex vortex or something? What is Natalie? For the ley lines. (laughs) beautiful Muscle Shoals documentary and um, they um, you know filmed on the river and uh, there is this idea that um, the creativity the Native Indians the Native Americans um, who were here you know long before um, anyone else they believed part of their creation myth was that there was a woman in that lived in the river who sang uh, then their healing arts, and so there is this idea of a spirit in the river. So it's very beautiful. Oh, oh my goodness gracious! That's makes me want to cry. Awesome. <laughs> what was her name? What was the river spirit's name? Do you know? Uh, you know, I don't. I that's so that's interesting. A really good question. I know a lot about this story because of um, a friend of mine who built a, a sort of a monument to it, but I don't know that name. So I will see if I can find that out. Um, that's a really beautiful story (laughs) oh i didn't even begin to touch on it there's um for those of you i hope you can all come for a visit Um, there's a very beautiful um monument it's um one of the largest freestanding rock structures in america and it's a healing site so oh my goodness wow famous place as well there must be something energetic about it you know the, the location yes it's one of those um thin spots. places yeah where the, yeah the veil is thin or whatever the expression is <laughs> yeah well um switching back to fashion, fashion for a minute <laughs> um what are some of the major changes and i think you know for our audience ooh, the sun is like i'm sorry if that's bothering you know it's the river spirit it, yeah. She's saying, hey. Um, we're actually just a couple hundred yards from the Potomac River. Yeah. Anyway. Here, we're so um, a lot of our audience is quite familiar with 
fast fashion and, and the fashion industry. And so um, my question is about cha recent changes in the fashion industry. Um, but I'm wondering if there's anything that, like even recent, recent changes, like we started our company four years ago, which is no time, because we felt like we couldn't find any um, ethically and sustainably produced clothing items for that we were interested in and you know but it just feels like such a different landscape now even just four years later and I don't know if that's because we're immersed in it or what that yeah. is or if people or if it's just becoming more mainstream but um, I'm curious as to your perspective uh, obviously there's been a lot of changes over the span of your career but even more recently since there's kind of been this awakening uh, what do you observe to be some of the biggest shifts around the way the industry operates? I mean, you know, I personally don't feel like enough has been done yet. So mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, we've had some horrible events that um, have taken place that, you know, of course, because we have more visibility globally now, so we know about those things, mm -hmm. but you know, did it stop everybody from, you know, buying fast fashion? Right. I don't yeah. know. And, and so I feel like we're going in sort of waves. I mean, it's definitely getting better. It's, you know, it's like a graph that goes up and down and up and down. And so I still think we have a pretty steep uh, climb ahead of us. And, you know, part of that is education, which, Obviously, um, you know, schools could take some of that back if, if we could reintroduce, you know, home economics or, yeah. you know, consumer sciences um, across um, across America, you know, consumer part of sciences, all of the curriculum. Uh, I've never heard that. Consumer sciences? Yeah. Is that like a subject? Consumer sciences? Yeah. Oh, wow. Am I too young? Yeah. <laughs> What does that uh, mean? Well, like, I, I think, as I recall it, Natalie, you would have a class that, um, you know, taught you about buying things, looking for, you know, you know, how to purchase things, how to work a budget, all that kind of thing. Yeah, how to balance a checking account, yeah. how to, you know, how to sew, how to do embroidery, how to sew on a button, how to hem a pair of pants, just basics. Yeah, like you house, know, house management. Well, I, home ec I know of, I guess, sort of. But they, I barely did home ec. We, like we learned how to make pancakes. I definitely didn't learn how to sew in no. school. Consumer sciences is kind of a more modern name for okay. um, home economics. So yeah, um, okay. You know, I think it's really important. You know, somebody just commented that they're 27 and had consumer science class in middle school. I mean, yeah. it should be mandatory. Really. Yeah. Right, because yeah. that's how we learn to take care of ourselves. I know, and like we were saying before, it's kind of debilitating to not know these things, and you're really robbed when you're when you're trained and conditioned to just buy for all you of your yeah. needs. That's really unsustainable. Yeah, and there there are forces out there that you know don't don't want, want us you, to know don't how to sell. want us to know you know this independence and stuff. They want us to keep buying and. But I was wondering if, you know, you, the whole Rana Plaza collapse thing happened, um, what, seven years ago, and you were well into your career by then. Did you see, like, a big shift then in people's awareness and stuff and and a change that has stuck, or did it kind of come and go, like you were saying? 
came for a moment. I do feel like uh, recently that, um, you know, this year has has yeah. created definitely a shift in how, um, you know, people view their clothing and what's necessary. And, um, you know, it's made us uh, look at everything, like what's important to us, what's important to me, what's, you know, what do I want to, um, you know, when things feel kind of uncertain, I have a certain amount of, um, you know, income that I can invest and how do I want to use that? You know, what's important to me, what's important to my family. And, um, you know, I think it's just, these are all really important questions and, um, you know, education is the way to, to, I think, make these questions available to a larger audience, if that makes sense. I hope I'm yeah. not rambling. No, yeah. definitely. No, you know, one thing is like, um, I think, you know, in 2020, the whole COVID thing, people have kind of a different relationship to their clothes. You know, they people aren't needing on, on a large scale, you know, the work clothes or the going out and socializing clothes. And I think we are, are are thinking about clothing really differently than they were even a year ago. Or not thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. There's a great uh, organization in our community that started in Georgia called 12 for Life. And it um, we had a very low um, finish rate. I, I, there's more, uh, there's a better term for that where kids were dropping out of high school too early. So only, I think like 70% or 68% of students were actually finishing the 12th grade. And, um, you know, part of it was economic, like they were having to leave school to go, um, to work for their families. So, um, this great organization, 12 for life, um, made it a class where they learned to balance a checkbook, fill out a, you know, an application, go to work. So they go to school half day and work half day and learn um, life skills. And I just, I mean, how important is that? Like yeah. every child should need to do that. And I yeah. was, as I said, when we were writing our vision the other day, I was talking to our staff about you know, I got all the way through design school. I, I never learned anything about business. I knew nothing about accounting. I knew, you know, I just became an avid reader. I would just, I just read and studied and read and studied all the time to try to learn how to, you know, just manage the most simple things, like to learn what cost of goods sold meant. And, you know, I, uh, I had an accountant once tell me, you know, pretty much like, don't worry your pretty little head about it. Lady. <laughs> oh, like, I've heard that too. And I know you've heard that. You know, I just sat up and I said, you know what? You're fired. Yeah. So I, I think it, all these skills, you know, are really, really important for, for young people. Um, we're doing them a disservice by not, um, you know, teaching them and you know, middle school, high school, and, and college. Mm -hmm. I mean, I got all the way through, you know, mm -hmm. worked and became a, you know, business owner before I really learned how to do it. So. Yeah. So out of necessity, right? Yeah. So we do have a question in the thing. Yeah. Um, jump in really quickly. This is a fun one. What is your favorite piece you've designed? And um, what's your favorite piece from Alabama Shannon to where? 
Um, well, that, you know, the favorite one that I've designed, I've, I've um, you know, there's a lot of them. And famously, everybody used to make fun of me because I would always, whatever we were working on, I'd be like, this is the best collection we've ever done. I'm so proud of this. And then, you know, two years later, I'm like, oh, I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, it's not that I don't like it, but uh, yeah. there's a few pieces that have, you know, meaning to me or like there's a skirt we're we're working on a 20-year collection now that highlights some of the older pieces that we've done so kind of pulling from the archive as a celebration of that and you know there's like this particular skirt and there was it was on shalom harlow and vogue and you know i just i was so proud at that moment i just screamed i remember being in new york and just screaming because there was this beautiful full page picture of our skirt and so there's some things like that that just you know make my heart sing I don't know there's a French there's an Italian Vogue um, spread that one of my favorite stylists did and there's a little t-shirt in it and you know I just I love that and I don't know there's some just a lot what do you what do you like to wear um, well, currently, I love all of our waffles. We have this beautiful, luxurious, organic waffle. And so, uh, you know, I have like the waffle pullover. I have the waffle wrap. I I love to wear that. Uh, the waffle skirt with the, you know, this is a rib turtleneck. I, I, I have kind of my, um, I usually have kind of like a uniform that I stick to just my go-tos and I just wear them and wash them, wear them, wash them, wear them, wash them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, kind of like pajamas. We have, we have a joke um, every day at Alabama Shannon is pajama day. Oh. <laughs> Especially 2020 right <laughs> now. <laughs> but you know, you want to look good even when you're in your pajamas. So. Of course. So is the, your, um, your waffle, it's organic cotton. It is. Yeah. It is. And where's the cotton from? I'm just curious because there's, you know, we have, uh, we have two different kinds of cotton. So our medium weight cotton Jersey is, is a hundred percent U S supply chain. So it's the cotton is grown in Texas and, um, and spun processed in North Carolina and then comes to us for cutting and sewing. And I, um, I should know off the top of my head, which ones are which, and I I can get to that really quickly or I can, show you guys i can send it to you so you can uh and then we have some other fabrics that are organic cotton um the cotton is raised in either india or turkey so it's certified organic Mm -hmm. but this is long staple cotton so like we have a lightweight jersey fabric that requires this very fine um very fine long yarn um made from this long staple fiber and um there are no machines left in the U.S. that can spin that. So that is imported as yarn and then knit in North Carolina. And so we're, uh, we're actually currently working on our website to add, the, um, you know, what comes from where so that there's a little bit more transparency about the, um, about the cotton supply chain. But the, yeah, I think as, as, you know, consumers learn more about this and they're, I think yeah. there's beginning to be more of a, a, a I think trend. Red is made from the lighter weight yarn. So any of yeah. the lighter weight fabrics that we 
carry require that finer um, yarn and so we yeah. have a North Carolinian wondering if you know where in North Carolina these are spun. Um, yes, yeah, so um, I'm just drew blank. You'll think of it in a minute. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, part of it is done at uh, hill spinning. I'm just going to do a quick Google so that I can, I can tell you where hill spinning is. Um, I should know that. Thomasville, North Carolina. Ah. And then, uh, Parkdale does some of the other spinning. And I think they have you know, some mills spread out, some spinning houses spread out kind of all over North Carolina. I think there's some close to Burlington and there's some further closer down to Spartanburg, South Carolina. So just across the border there. Mm. Yeah. Someone's asking, do you see a good future for more organic textile production in the U.S.? Yes. So currently, I mean, that is one thing. There's currently a dearth of organic cotton on the globe. So it's um, yeah. it definitely we're starting to see an uptick. And so, of course, as there's more demand, then more farmers are going to plant that. And um, it's also uh, kind of a seed issue, I think. Uh, you know, I did a little bit of study. It's quite a complicated conversation to have but we did some study around this and um, grew an organic cotton field in our community I guess in 2008 or 9 something like that and so there's not enough seed for all the farmers who want to plant organics and so and then there's what they call tr transitional cotton so that would mean you know perhaps a place where um, the the ground is not certified, but they're working to get it towards being a certified um, organic field. So there's a lot of transitional cotton right now, which of course yeah. we want to support farmers as they're making um, that transition from one thing to the next. So, um, you know, it's pretty, you could do a whole conference just on cotton. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> That's encouraging. I would like to. Yes. I think it's really important for people to realize that um, it's not just organic or not organic, but like as you just said, there's a lot of transition going on and there's a lot of things in between. So um, people shouldn't shut down, you know, if it doesn't say certified organic, but you yeah. can find out where it's from and what they're doing differently and, you know, what improvements they're trying to make over conventional cotton because there are some things in between. So the, our, like our medium weight cotton jersey fabric, which is our staple fabric that comes from the Texas fiber, it's, um, you know, the, the fiber is certified organic, but by the time the yeah. knitting mill is not certified yeah. organic. So it's not officially certified organic mm -hmm. after it goes to, to the knitting mill. But, you know, the farming part of it is a pretty big piece of the puzzle and yeah. one of the most important parts that it's certified organic, right? Yeah. And so that's why, you know, this fiber that's being grown in in India and Turkey is certified and you know all of the bales of cotton now have a bar come with a barcode so they can be traced back to the farm yeah. um, so that you can also you know hopefully um, prevent slavery practices around cotton and things yeah. like that because that is still a problem today yeah absolutely a lot of people don't really know mm -hmm. yeah there's still a lot of slavery around cotton and on the globe and um so there's a you know there's a big movement to protect so human rights movement yeah. yes. 
around that. So it it is really important to shop with companies that you believe in who are doing their best to do the right thing all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a great segue, I think, into unless someone anyone else has questions, throw them in. But um, I'd like to ask you to speak a little bit to the connection between the clothing that you create and your company and the good dirt. Uh, <laughs> 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 oh, um, well, I've been thinking a lot about good dirt, um, you know, since we began this conversation and um, what good dirt means. And as I mentioned, I spoke at a conference recently where there are a lot of soil scientists and, um, you know, I do think it's, I, you know, I always said uh, we could just compost our clothes, but I think that maybe that's not true, you know, and I think I'm really, I'm really inspired by that to think more about how to get our clothes to be sure, 100% sure that what we're making can then go in the compost and what that means from a dying perspective and all those kinds of things. So I do think we have some work to do in the coming time to yeah. catch up to good dirt. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, it's um, definitely a process. <laughs> yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, we have just a couple more really quickly. Someone's asking, it seems like the certification process makes it really hard for small businesses to get and maintain certification and small sewing facilities, as you mentioned. Is there any kind of work being done on this? Like, is that, how, is there something we can do to make that easier? I mean, our facility is not certified either. The certification facility, and I think a lot of, um, you know, even food um, growers and things like that are finding that they just can't afford the certification yeah. process. So, um, you know, the Texas Organic Cotton Growers Association, they've been growing organic cotton, I think, 30, 35 years now. Don't quote me on that, but close. I mean, a long, long time. So they made a huge commitment to um, organics long before we were, you know, having a global conversation about it. But I think if you can try to just make sure that the fiber is certified and then from that point forward you know there's not a lot of um you know there's no strong chemicals involved in the spinning process well in in some cases there might be but in in our case not and um you know you just i think if you can be very um just ask a lot of questions mm -hmm continue to ask questions because people change things all the time, yeah. you know, so maybe there's an enzyme they're using that isn't um, really as sustainable as you want it to be. So um, I think it just takes constant vigilance, right? Yeah. You just have to be on it all the time and ask those questions. And, um, you, really you know, have I'm a bit of a realist. I, I think you do just do the very best you can. And then once you do that, you can sleep at night and get up the next day and do the very best you can again. And, and I think that's, um, I hope that yeah, I makes think, sense. I think that's the way it is with all the, the sustainability things. You know, you, you do the best you can. It's never going to be perfect. And... Yeah. You, sometimes you're going to come up short. You can't check all the boxes, but I think the very fact that you're, you know, you're on 
on the trail or you had this intention is, is, is big. And well, you know, this is a perfect example. So when we were using recycled, um, t-shirts only. So we were only doing recycled t-shirts and we were doing some coats that took about 28 t-shirts. Okay. So this is where this conversation with Jill Domain went, like we were buying, we had these um, companies that, um, you know, there's more clothes thrown away than can be sold at secondhand stores and things like that. So we had these companies that buy like bales of clothing and they would sort out hundred percent cotton t-shirts with no prints on them for us. And we would buy them by the box and we would get them shipped to us. So I would crack the boxes open and we would go through the t-shirts, wash them, sanitize them, um, make sure they were appropriate washing one washing then they would get shipped to a dye house right they would dye them more water um then they would come back to us more you know petrol co2 everything coming back to us we would sort them out again oftentimes wash them again right and then um cut them up these 28 t-shirts to make one garment and so you know jill Demain was like let's think about how much CO2 you're putting into the air. Let's think about how much, you know, petrol you're using. Let's think about how many washings you have to have. Like once you start to think about that, perhaps for the bigger pieces, it would be better, more earth friendly to use organic cotton, like new organic cotton. And that was where we landed. And oh. um, so you know, looking back, like I thought we were doing the right thing. Right. And, but 20 years from now, somebody may look back at, you know, the body of my work and be like, they weren't working. You know, it wasn't very good at all. She was greenwashing. <laughs> <laughs> it was greenwashing, yeah. you know? So yeah. I, you know, it's you, yeah. You just keep yeah, pushing yeah. Much as you can. Never claim perfection. Yeah. And, you know, connecting with smart people who maybe have, you know, see something that you don't. Right. And be open to that. Like, I could have just been pissed off that I was called a greenwasher after. Right. Right. But instead of being upset or whatever, it just, it's like, you know, okay, let me prove it. Or let me, let me prove it. Yeah. Maybe not prove it. Let me prove it. And, uh, yeah. You know, Natalie, you have been so generous with your time today. We have one last question. Yeah. Um, someone wants to know, Ashley, can you talk about uh, how you decide when it's time to give up or give away your clothing and how often you rotate your wardrobe? Me personally? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I, as I mentioned, I... I kind of have like a uniform, so I wear the same thing over and over and over again. And I mean, I keep things for a very long time and I'm a mender, so I will mend and carry on. So, um, you know, this shirt I have on right now, I've probably had for since 2013, 2014. And, you know, I've worn it a lot and washed it. So I, I'm, I'm, if I find something I love, I'm, I want to hold on to it until it pretty much falls apart. Yeah. So you're not a rotator. <laughs> I mean, sometimes within our business, we'll kind of change. We'll have the, like a little exchange and, you know, um, sometimes I feel like, oh, I can't go to the grocery store and that because people judge me. You know, <laughs> yeah. 
not in 2020. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that that famous designer? Yeah. <laughs> what is she wearing? <laughs> well, <laughs> shopping in her pajamas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, yeah. I you know I would say the longer the better. Yeah. I, I it takes me time to you know to break it in. Like I just start when I start to love it. It's yeah. You know, after a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have we'll end on this one last question. We try to end all our. We've said that like four times. Sorry. <laughs> what we've said this is the last. Oh question. yeah, last question. This is the last question. Um, okay, what is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you do? <laughs> oh, I I think you wrote that down as a question, and I guess I don't have a great answer for it. I, you know, I. I guess really it's, it's a team, it's our team. You know, I think that um, sometimes it's really easy for, you know, me to be the face of the company and the founder and those sorts of things. But, you know, after 20 years, an organization takes on its own life and, you know, that's no different with Alabama Channel. Like it has its life, its personality that has gone beyond what I started. And, I think um, I'm really excited for um, our team and for that next generation to begin to move into the leadership role. And I'm really excited to move on to what my next thing is going to be, yeah. you know, and yeah. um, I think um, that's very healthy and a very um, beautiful way to look at a business. Um, yeah. Thank I'm you. excited to look and see what you do. Next. Yeah, me too. It's just really, we this, all are. This conversation has been so like spot on yes. everything we're about and we're interested in and exploring so um we couldn't thank have you. had a better guess for our slow living retreat here so thank you so much it's been just really great everybody who showed up and yeah. asked questions and listened so yeah thank you well um Enjoy a glass of red wine tonight or whatever. And we'll yeah. be, we have a we have a retreat happy hour tonight, so yeah. Um, as well, and have a great rest of your retreat. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much, Natalie. And everyone listening, we'll see you tonight at happy hour. <laughs> Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed this episode with Natalie and we can't wait to see you on the Almanac. Stay tuned for more information on that and uh, please rate and review and subscribe to The Good Dirt and thank you Holy Lamb Organics for sponsoring this episode. Any last words, mom? Yes, I'd just like to say um, thanks for everybody who had a part in the Slow Living Retreat and also Special thanks again, once again, to our retreat podcast sponsor, Holy Lamb Organics, and check them out in our store. And we will see you all next time. Thank you so much. Thank you.
you like listening to The Good Dirt? I hope you do, because you're here listening to it. And are you looking for more Good Dirt in your life and a community of slow-living enthusiasts to connect with, all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast? Well, we're so excited to offer The Almanac. It's our private, slow-living community network where we share workshops, activities, articles, essays, recipes, and so much more that align with our community's sustainable, slow, seasonal way of living. As a member, you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings. Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow-living enthusiasts, as well as Almanac-exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow-living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including the Slow Living Retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay. That's ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac for three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com slash community.